Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I talk a lot about psychedelics on this show, and there are a few reasons for that. One is that I'm interested in the therapeutic potential of these drugs. We're in the midst of a surge in psychedelic research right now, and that's enormously promising. Anything that offers a new way to address mental health problems is worth exploring. But another reason is that psychedelics are incredibly strange and fascinating. It's a way to have your view of reality transformed, or at least unmoored in some fundamental way. That has certainly been my own experience with psychedelics, some of which I've written about for Vox. I am much less certain today than I used to be about the nature of my own mind and its relationship to the world around me. In that way, there seems to be some important overlap between exploring psychedelics and asking philosophical questions, which is what we try to do on the show. How do we know that what we're experiencing is real and not some illusion or hallucination? These sorts of questions are central to René Descartes in his 17th century work, The Meditations on First Philosophy. If you've taken a philosophy course, you probably know Descartes. And they're also the kinds of questions you ask yourself when you take psychedelics. So why don't more philosophers take psychedelics seriously? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Justin Smith Ruyu. He's a visiting professor at Princeton University, specializing in the history and philosophy of science. He's got a great new book called The Internet Is Not What You Think It Is, and he's doing a staying over on Substack too. Justin recently wrote a piece for Wired called This Is a Philosopher on Drugs. Yeah, there's no way that headline was getting past me. The piece is about how his personal experiences with psychedelics upended his understanding of reality and made him reevaluate his profession, his relationship to time, and really his entire identity. It's a risky thing for an academic to write a piece like that. And Justin knew it when he decided to write it. So I invited him onto the show to talk about his experiences, why he decided to write about them, and how they've changed him. Justin smith Ruyu, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Delighted to be here. Just so the audience can get a sense of sort of where you're coming from intellectually, mm-hmm. what is your focus as a philosopher? What are the questions that have driven your work? 
Well, I made the curious choice about 25 years ago in grad school to write my dissertation on a German philosopher who lived in the late 17th and early 18th centuries named Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. Leibniz was a polymath and a genius and someone who contributed to more fields than most of us have even heard of. And I wanted to be as much like Leibniz as possible, which of course is impossible. But nonetheless, I remain Leibnizian in my general approach to philosophy, which is that philosophy is ultimately a boundless discipline. And in this, I think I differ very much, this as in many other respects, from most of my colleagues who tend to see philosophy as a very well-defined, limited space of inquiry. I'm much more with Leibniz, for whom philosophy was just absolutely everywhere. That said, my primary interest for most of my career has been in the points of contact between natural science and metaphysics as debates flourished around these questions in the 17th century. Uh, what are the ultimate constituents of reality and what can science do to help us arrive at knowledge of these? That's been my primary interest all along. This may seem like a strange question, but I think it will be useful to know this about you before we get into some of the weirdness we're going to get into here. Um, have you ever been, are you a religious person? Well, that's, yeah, that's a bold question. I would say yes, but part of that means spending a lifetime reflecting on what it might mean to answer yes to that question. <laughs> so I'm a religious person, but I remain a philosopher, uh, probably because I'm a product of the 20th, 21st centuries. I remain extremely circumspect about what declarations of faith commitments would be. Yeah. Uh, I am not a dogmatic materialist at, at all. Could you say what you mean by materialist here? Sure. Um, we make a distinction in the history of philosophy between two basic uh, metaphysical systems. One is materialism and the other is idealism. Idealism holds that in some way or other, what we call reality is a result of the activity of minds or of mind-like entities, and that matter in some way or other flows from this activity. Materialism is the opposite of that. It's the view that what we call minds are the result of particular arrangements of matter. Natural science for the past few centuries has been by default implicitly materialistic. Uh, neuroscience wants to know what the neural correlates of mental events are. Neurons, that is the neural correlates, are themselves physical or material entities. And so neuroscience seeks materialistically to get uh, minds from matter, you know, to make the story short. There is um, a kind of dogmatism, to use your word. Mm -hmm. You see it in secular and religious types where someone thinks they've got the answers. They think they really know what they know. And there's a lack of humility about what's actually knowable. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing about that kind of dogmatic realism is that it is audacious enough to claim common sense for itself, right? And the reason why I say this is weird is because we all know, even if we know very little about the past 150 years of developments in theoretical physics, we all know that the external world is, by any measure, a really weird thing, right? There's just no way around that. It might be something that looks nothing at all the way it presents itself to our senses, the way it presents itself to appearance. That is a really audacious claim. Now, as for myself personally and where I've always come down, I mean, it's difficult for me because I, I feel like I've not quite fully articulated or 
thought through for my own satisfaction where the bounds of the knowable are. Yeah, I think you and I share a pretty similar disposition there. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, I'm pretty pro-science, right? There's a certain vein in which I operate for a good deal of my waking life in which I am indeed prepared to take for granted claims about the distant past of the universe or about the descent of species by natural selection and the formation of the moon when an interstellar body hit the early Earth and things like this. All of that is I'm ready to say true, right? Or uh, I'm confident enough that it's true that I'll go on speaking as if it's true, and so on. Um, I'm not sure that the sum total of all such bits of knowledge that I'm prepared to call true is nonetheless an exhaustive account of reality. And I don't see any compelling evidence that science is in any position to determine whether it's exhaustive or not. Yeah, you know, I think my evolution has certainly been away from certainty and towards a, a greater appreciation, I'll say, not just for uncertainty, but for the possibility that maybe the world really is far stranger than we can imagine. And the only sensible thing to do <laughs> is embrace that on some level. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, at the same time, I think it's one's duty to remain abreast of the best physical scientific theories out there. Yeah. And I also think that our awareness of the strangeness of the universe needs to be kind of complemented by what I would describe as a historicist sensitivity to the different ways people account for the universe in different eras. Yeah. This comes across to some people as relative um, I don't care. Um, I myself think it's just part of the good method of inquiring into the range of possible beliefs about the world, but I'm equally disposed to learning about cosmologies in which the continuing rising and setting of the sun depends on our ongoing practice of human sacrifice as much as contemporary theoretical physics as kind of the range of accounting for the way the world is. So the spark for this conversation was this big piece you wrote for Wired about your experience with psychedelics. Yeah. It's actually titled, This is a Philosopher on Drugs. As usual, I didn't choose the title, but I, I kind of like it. All I can say is that is straight up catnip for me, personally. And <laughs> I mean, first of all, how did that come about? I mean, did, did they reach out to you or did you decide on your own that this was something you wanted to write about? Did you feel compelled to write about that, in other words? Yeah, I mean, well, there are two factors. One is that I had some very peculiar, noteworthy psychedelic experiences, somewhat belatedly. Uh, I was in my late 40s when I started doing this with a long history of reflecting on philosophical questions. So I think it was very, very different than, you know, the experience of the kind of uh, ratty kids I was hanging around with in the late 80s who were dropping tons of acid. I was always too scared. <laughs> so it was very different. And indeed, yeah, I wanted to write about it or to try to put it in language, which is not so easy to do. But another dimension of it was indeed that I started to see the ways in which this experience is relevant to my profession and that the kind of denial of its relevance is really just a taboo. There's no other way to account for it. When you make your brain do certain things with chemicals that cause you to perceive the world differently than without them, you are disclosing to yourself a certain kind of perspective on reality. And there is no good philosophical argument to the effect that that perspective on reality is any more uh, spurious than the one that you have in your ordinary waking life. Again, 
our brains do not apprehend the world itself, or I should say perhaps better, our consciousness does not apprehend the world itself. It apprehends the world through the veil of perception. And what we're able to apprehend has to be taken with a massive grain of salt, even when we're not on any special chemical substances. Yeah. Therefore, when you are on special chemical substances and the world looks different, there's no good reason to say this is not the world. It looks different because it's false or spurious. Your path to experimentation with marijuana and psychedelics is obviously a big part of this story. It's a big part of the article you wrote. I know you, you lost a parent and that looms very large here. You know, the, the death of a parent is such a disorienting experience. I lost my, my mother uh, very suddenly a few years ago. And, mm. you know, once the, um, once the initial shock starts to fade away a little bit, you, you really do start to reflect on, on life and time and how people, especially people you love and take for granted, can suddenly vanish. And if that's where you are in your life, psychedelics can be a hell of a catalyst. And it seems like it was for you. Well, absolutely. I think um, there is a kind of crisis, indeed. We call it the midlife crisis, and that's where I'm at very much. Uh, but this midlife crisis isn't just a matter of a receding hairline or dropping testosterone levels or whatever. There's a lot more to it than that. And I, if I had to put it into words, I would say it's a different experience of time and of one's place in time and indeed of the horizon of mortality. And this is indeed compounded by a parent's death, which also for me came with the sharp sense, if I can put it this way, of my own identity with my father, or let's say the continuity of my being with my father's being. And that is in some kind of literal sense just true, uh, but also it's a kind of sharp recognition of the very, very brief flash of time that is a person's life. And this creates a kind of, I don't want to say pressure, but a kind of need to do something bold. Yeah. Also, I think another dimension of the midlife crisis for me is a sudden precipitous drop in any concern about career and reputation, right? Like, where did all that striving go? Like, I can remember being like that 10, 15 years ago, and it's just gone. So I'll say whatever. I'll say whatever about what I'm doing and what I'm experiencing. I'll do any low-status, deviant, weirdo thing that appeals to me because, you know, what the hell? Life is short, right? That's, that's, like, that's the short answer. <laughs> We've got to take a quick break, but when we're back, I'll ask Justin why he thinks that psychedelics have been considered off-limits by academic philosophy. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. 
At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off borough.com slash box. Why is it that philosophers have been so uninterested in mind-altering drugs? I mean, lots of philosophers have taken drugs, obviously, but very few have written about it or taken the philosophical implications seriously, yeah. which seems very strange to me. Why, why this blind spot in the, the history of philosophy and philosophers? Well, I think it has a lot to do with institutional dynamics more than anything. And one thing that I often stress, and this started to come out already in my 2019 book, Irrationality, is that even if you wish to continue to abstain from psychedelic drugs, and that's fine, there's still a little problem, which is that willy-nilly, you're going to be spending about eight hours out of 24 hallucinating wildly, right? We all do that for about a third of our lives. Right. It's called dreaming. dreaming, right? And so perhaps more instructive than the question, why don't philosophers do drugs, is the question, why don't philosophers put faith or take stock in their dreams? And I think what we see there is that there's a very specific local historical trajectory. I never like it when people set René Descartes up as a straw man or as a whipping boy, but for convenience's sake, let's go ahead and do it anyway. There's an obvious story to be told where circa 1642, it became very important for Western philosophy to establish the criteria by which we can be certain that we are not currently dreaming. That's, I think, the moment at which Western philosophy is coming to define itself first and foremost as sober and awake, needing to be in that hyper-lucid state that appears to be most conducive to the exercise of the faculty of reason, and at the same time, sweeping under the rug all that crazy stuff you were just hallucinating 15 minutes ago before you woke up, right? Yeah. It's the centering of the faculty of reason more than anything that has as a kind of side effect the elimination of any consideration of altered states of mind that includes psychedelic drugs, but also includes dreaming. We still don't even really know what consciousness is or how it works. Yeah. And if you have any kind of experience that involves the erosion of whatever you think of as your own subjectivity. Yeah. Well, you know, all bets are off. I mean, you mentioned Descartes yeah. just now and at various points in your in your article. And of course, you know, he's he's very famous for the subject object distinction or the mind body split. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that model feels so intuitively true in everyday life. It really does feel like we have a body and there's a separate thing, our mind inhabiting that body. Yeah. And the mind is what separates us from the world around us. But that boundary really is illusory and it melts away under a sufficient dose of psychedelics. Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. If I can talk about uh, 17th century philosophy for just another moment, part of Descartes' project was to establish the external existence of what he called extended stuff, right? Another word for which is matter, but of which the essential property is just to take up space. That's all it does. And that is what, over the next few centuries, people will start calling the objective world, right? Or objective reality. Now, in the course of establishing the existence of extended stuff, Descartes forgets in his method of radical doubt to prove the existence of other minds. By the end of his famous meditations, all we have established with certainty is the existence of the self and the external world and God. That's it. So what about other people? Descartes forgot about them, right? Now, at the same time, you have someone like Leibniz, who shares a lot with Descartes, but it is still very, very different from him in certain regards. Leibniz has this conviction that he almost certainly got to without ever taking psychedelic drugs. He was too square for that, as I put it. So according to Leibniz, there is no meaningful conception at all of a being that is not, as he puts it, analogous to the I, that is not in some way an other mind. He called these entities monads. The short story is that for Leibniz, the existence of a wall or a mountain or a cloud is ultimately just the phenomenological result of the perceptual activity of the infinitely many monads constituting the wall or the mountain or the cloud, right? In other words, the world consists exhaustively in an infinity of mind-like immaterial substances. That is a pretty good theoretical framework for apprehending the world on mushrooms as well. You become hyper-attuned to what you ordinarily took to be mere objects, but suddenly come across to you as subjects. Yes. That's what I want to emphasize of my own experience. Different people have different experiences, but my experience has primarily been to attune me to the omnipresent surrounding of mind-like substances that you can give any sort of name you want. Terence McKenna called them the little green fairies. <laughs> I don't see it like that. I've never done DMT. Yeah. What I tend to experience is just a world of mind or soul endowed entities. And as Leibniz would put it, these seem to be infinite in number and to exist at whatever lower threshold of attention you want to focus your mind. I've done a pretty heavy dose of ayahuasca. And you know, I don't know how similar this is to your experience on shrooms. And what I'm about to say here feels like it's the kind of thing that's probably going to get edited out. But uh, what the hell? We're going full late night dorm room here, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And I'd be curious if you had a similar experience. We sort of ruin our relationship with reality by abstracting ourselves out of it. Mm -hmm. Even our language, to use the word I, as you were just saying, is kind of already to trap yourself in the illusion that the self is this thing separate from the world. Yeah, That's kind of how I think of the Garden of Eden story, that it's really about the, the birth of self-consciousness and how that was the moment our species separated from nature. Right, 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 yeah. I know that interpretation is not unique to me, but boy, I, I, it, it resonates for sure. No, I, I think I think it indeed sounds very compelling. I mean, one thing that that is noteworthy in my own experience, though, with psilocybin uh, and with LSD, is that sometimes ego gets only more pronounced, and I start to feel like the the Lord and Sovereign of the universe. <laughs> Other times, it dissolves. It's hard to say which one is more accurate, or who knows what the precise neuro chemical circumstances are that push me in the one direction rather than the other. Yeah. I, I really don't know, but both can happen and both seem to disconceal something about the way reality is. <laughs> well, what can we really draw from these sorts of 
experiences, right? I mean, we mm-hmm. we take these substances, they radically, and I do mean radically, alter our conscious experience. And it's hard to know what to make of that. There is a case to be made that what we experience on psychedelics is actually much more real than what we experience when we're, for the most part, sleepwalking through the routines of everyday default life. But I suppose you, you could very much argue in the opposite <laughs> direction. But I mean, again, for, for people who say, hey, look, you know, this is these are drug induced hallucinations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Full stop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but how do you push back against people who want to dismiss the substance of these experiences and the significance of them for the people who have them? Well, I guess, I mean, ultimately, there is a very important genetic strand in the history of philosophy going back to antiquity that would tell us that philosophy is a preparation for death, right? Yeah. Um, That's not in fashion here at Princeton, for example. That's not what most people are doing these days when they're doing philosophy. But when Socrates says it, he doesn't mean, you know, get out there and start digging your grave or something like that. He means work yourself into a state of mind mind in which you will appreciate that death is not an intrinsic evil, that it's not bad. (laughs) Um, And that's indeed a good project for this life because you're going to die. (laughs) And, um, And it would suck if you had to spend all that time before you die thinking nothing but I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Don't make me die. Don't make me die. Right. That would be um, infantile. That's what Socrates says to the jury at Athens. What do you want me to do? Stand here and stomp my feet like a baby? I'm 70 years old. Right? Go ahead and kill me. In my experience, and again, the experiences may vary, but in my experience, psychedelics are very useful for driving home the point that to die is no great misfortune. How do they do that? Well, they give you a kind of experience of the world from the point of view of eternity, if I can put it like that. That is to say, the flow of time, at least in my experience, comes to seem like it is not the ultimate parameter of reality. I've had that experience very sharply. And here, in this case, it's an example of psychedelic drugs not so much convincing you you don't exist as rather convincing you you exist in some kind of eternal, non-temporal way. But also, when the experience is one of a dissolution of the self, that can also leave a kind of comforting afterglow in the face of one's own mortality to the extent that it kind of makes the ultimate dissolution of the self in death something you've kind of already been through, right? Um, That's the way I would put it. You've been through it and it's not such a big deal. There's this idea that drugs dull our experience mm-hmm. of reality, and some do. Alcohol definitely makes you numb in that way. And you talk about falling into a depression after you stop drinking, which makes sense because alcohol really is a kind of anesthetic. Yeah. But psychedelics seem to do precisely the opposite. Yeah, yeah. I, I start sounding like a super kind of annoying neo-pagan type when I go down this path, and I, I'm aware of this. But at the same time, it seems pretty widely attested in anthropological and archaeological research that indigenous peoples throughout the world are pretty good at finding the vegetal and fungal substances that will blow their minds. And it also seems like it was a pretty important part of the Christianization of at least Europe in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages to eradicate these practices. And in that respect, the general condition of alcoholism that pervades Europe or the Western world seems to me a really, really tragic replacement for what we might imagine was centuries before an ability to seek out the substances that do something much more powerful and meaningful to us, and leaving us with alcohol alone 
known as the only substance we're allowed to take to to transform our perspective on reality. What an awful deal. (laughs) Maybe psychedelic experience is just a hallucination. I don't know. I don't know that that matters all that much. How do we know our, our everyday perception of the world isn't an hallucination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hell, how do we know we're not living in a computer simulation set, <laughs> right? Indeed, yeah. And I don't really understand the simulation hypothesis anyway, but psychedelics do seem to have changed how you think about this idea. And, and again, for people who aren't familiar, the basic idea here is what it sounds like, that we, we're living in a computer simulation, not unlike the Matrix. I didn't smoke a bowl before we recorded this, so I can't fully inhabit this theory. But, <laughs> you know, what did you make of it before psychedelics? And what do you make of it now? I mean, part of what's going on in your piece is that there's a philosopher, David Chalmers, who's been a guest on this show. And oh, yeah. he is someone who helped popularize this idea. And, and you went at him pretty hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A piece of criticism about some of his writings. And, and you, you revisit this in the article. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, like, I don't know if it's the effect of the psychedelics or of aging, but um, basically, I want to retire from the game of mutual criticism among philosophers. I'm just not emotionally constituted to engage in philosophy pugilistically. But the thing is, when I wrote my initial negative review of Chalmers' book, it's because ultimately I think that unwittingly he's um, serving dark forces. That is to say, I think that people like Elon Musk have an obvious stake in convincing us that the nature of reality itself resembles the kind of tech products he and others are in the business of selling. And I reject that version of the simulation argument as vociferously as ever. And I do think that Dave Chalmers was not sensitive enough in that book to the ideological dimensions of that argument's popularity in the present moment. So what's the version of, of, of this theory that you do find plausible? And you can explain what that is as simply as, as, as you can. Sure. I guess my problem is that it would be a pretty weird coincidence if the universe happened to resemble technologies that we happened to come up with in the past half century or so. So to my mind, to say that the universe is an illusion or the universe is some sort of dream or something like that, that's fine. Like, I'm perfectly fine with that. But to say the universe runs on the same basic principles as space invaders seems to me too much myopic preoccupation with our own current gadgets. And here, I can't help but draw on my competence as a historian of science and to note that people have always been doing this. In the 17th century, for example, people were really keen on the idea that the universe is a clockwork, a horologium. Why? Well, because clock technology was the coolest thing around, right? These days, AI and virtual reality are the coolest things around, right? So, So we need to be historicist and cautious about our extrapolations from the present when we are engaging in philosophy. So that is one point. That said, having felt bad about my attempt to enter the ring and having uh, done some psychedelic drugs, (laughs) these two things together brought me around to a situation where I had to admit that sometimes under chemical influence, I can kind of see the matrix-like shape of reality. And I start to think about uh, things that I've done driving down country roads or going to antique fairs or flying in airplanes as things that didn't so much actually happen as rather something like, you know, entering rooms in Second Life. And it really, really strongly feels that way. It is not as prima facie absurd as I had portrayed it earlier to be. You still think it's absolutely possible that maybe we are living in a simulation? I mean, for me personally, even if we are, I'm not sure what difference it would make, really. I mean, the things that matter to me yesterday and today, love, solidarity, excitement, philosophy, it wouldn't matter any less yeah, yeah. <laughs> to me than they do now if, if it should happen. 
that we do. Yeah, yeah. I have no problem with some version of the so-called it-from-bit thesis that the world is potentially best understandable not as the totality of particles, but as the totality of units of information. That seems to me perfectly likely. And indeed, I think one way of understanding the longue durée transition that we've been undergoing since the 19th century, we're moving right now and at an ever more rapid pace from particle physics as the basis of reality to something more like information theory, right? Yeah. The queen of the sciences has been deposed. Physics is being replaced by informatics, right? I take the various simulation arguments as symptomatic of this transition. They're symptomatic of this transition without knowing it, without understanding that that's what they're actually doing. So if we can't credibly tell whether or not life as we experience it is just a simulation, can we credibly tell whether something we're experiencing is a hallucination? I mean, in your view, there are still such things as hallucinations that are unreal or untrue, right? Well, uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, you see the heat waves in the desert and you think there's an oasis there and then you get closer and it turns out not to be an oasis. That's a hallucination. Is there a deeper respect in which there actually is an oasis because you perceived it as being there? Mm, that sounds like a stretch to me. But then the difficult thing is distinguishing between hallucinations and non-hallucinations and the danger is not so much that there might not be true hallucinations, but rather that everything is at least in some measure a hallucination, right? In the sense that any angle I perceive the table from, it doesn't look strictly rectangular or I can't see all dimensions of it. All I can see is my version of the table. So what I'm bringing to the perception then is arguably if not a hallucination, at least something that is a cousin to hallucination. How did Justin's experiences with psychedelics change his priorities? Not just with respect to his career, but his whole life. That's coming up after one last short break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Justin, I'm curious, do you feel like your life, not just your intellectual life, but your whole life, really, has changed in some enduring way as a result of this journey you've gone down here the last few years? I mean, I, I know you you talk about this realization that so many of the things you cared about started to seem so much more unimportant, you know, like the careerism. Yeah. I'm curious if there are other things that maybe you did not think were super important, but now you think are absolutely important. 
Well, look, I mean, there's a lot of difficulty in teasing out exactly what is thanks to the the psychedelic awakening and what is part of the ordinary life course. For me, the pandemic was the absolute boundary between the before and the after of my life. And I think this is the case for many people sitting there in lockdown thinking, holy shit, what am I doing? What am I chasing after? This is ridiculous. So for the past three years, probably quite apart from the the psychedelic experiences, I've changed significantly. I I use heart emojis now when I'm when I'm sending emails to male friends, things like that. I love it. I'm becoming all touchy feely and shit. It's crazy. I, I mean, I spent decades of my life trying to be the embodiment of the straight laced heart core intellect that wanted to dominate and scare everybody, right? And um, that person has just died, right? Like, good riddance. I love that, Justin. (laughs) I mean, this is one of the many reasons your piece really resonated with me. I mean, after my first experience taking a a heavyweight dose, I remember having a very similar feeling Mm -hmm. that I was devoting so much of my life to shit that really did not matter in the end, and that I was worried about the judgments of other people, and that didn't matter either. Mm-hmm. But that feeling of liberation sort of collapsed into a kind of sadness about being trapped in a self or trapped in a story of myself that wasn't real, but was nevertheless reinforced every time I stepped out into the world of others. Yeah, no, no, indeed. I feel like you know i'm i'm touchy feely and emotional and and i try to be just like you know uh share the love as as widely as i can and i feel like that's kind of the whole point of life now yeah. at the same time i'm discouraged nearly every day by the blunt reality of kind of being trapped in my professional commitments and this identity that that I ultimately constructed myself. I constructed this cage for myself that, you know, people still want me to be in that involves upholding the standards of self-seriousness that I used to support. People keep calling me back to that mode of life every single day. And I'm really close to uh, leaving it in a more radical way, right? And that somewhat scares me. That scares my loved ones um, because they don't want me living in a shack in Mendocino County like like the old (laughs) hippie in the shack in Humboldt, (laughs) right? I mean, I'm not far from that. For the moment, I'm trying to hold things together, paying the bills and and doing my professional duties. <laughs> yeah, uh, boy, that's a uh, that's a tightrope walk. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know you've already spoken about this, but I want to ask anyway. How has all this changed? How you relate to your own death? In your essay, the word equanimity comes up a few times. You talk about wanting to arrive at some equanimity of soul, where this condition of ours namely our mortality, should no longer appear so absurd, so unacceptable. Yeah. Do you feel like you've arrived at some kind of peace with our existence, with your existence and all the frailties and uncertainties that define it? Well, I guess, yeah. I mean, I say, you know, Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Ilyich, who I gather was about eight years younger than I am now, the hero of the story, who realizes on his deathbed that he um, never fully appreciated the force of the syllogism, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. The guy's lying on his deathbed and he's like, wait a minute, I can replace Socrates with Ivan Ilyich. Why didn't I understand that before, right? That is the situation one doesn't want to be in. And indeed, I I realize now I spent 
a good part of my earlier life, really believing I was charmed in some way, kind of predestined to a large and radiant big time life that could not be brought down by unfortunate events. And now I think over the past years, and with the help of psychedelics, a large part of it is actually carrying that syllogism through in a way that Ivan Ilyich only did belatedly, understanding that I'm just like everything else in the world, subject to momentary flourishing, if you're lucky, and then decay. So indeed, it, it is very helpful in the project of what the Stoics called ataraxia or equanimity. Yeah. We're not going to unlock the riddle of the cosmos in this podcast. There's <laughs> no, not no, enough no. time or shrooms for that, unfortunately. But is, is there anything else worth saying before we get out of here? Yeah. I, I suppose, you know, I have a book project emerging from this Wired piece now, so you can expect to hear more from me. But I feel like I'm, I'm trying to walk a very careful line. Remarkably, I think Michael Pollan has walked this line in an ingenious way, right? He is a he's a serious, solid, respectable guy. And the fact that he's advocating microdosing does not seem to have pushed him over into the Timothy Leary category. I'd rather be with Michael Pollan than with Terence McKenna and Timothy Leary, but I'm trying to carve out a way to talk about these things and also to acknowledge that I have some what gone off the deep end while at the same time being taken seriously as a lucid and reliable dialogue partner with people who are not currently tripping their asses off right i would and, uh, i'd love to alternate weekends with uh, mckenna and leary and then uh pollen and and, <laughs> and you and others um, yeah right uh, right right that's that's just me I mean, the truth is, like, I'm not at all a regular drug user. I, I spend the vast majority of my life uh, extremely lucid. <laughs> um, but I, I still think we need people who are capable of dipping in at will to that depth of experience and then coming back out to write about it. This conversation was as fun as I hoped it would be. People, you should go check out Justin's article in Wire. You should go read his book, The Internet Is Not What You Think It Is. Oh, read my Substack too, if I'm allowed to pitch that. Yes. Absolutely. Justin Smith Ruyu, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Sean. Great to talk to you. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd and Brandon McFarlane engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. I think it's quite interesting that someone who has spent basically his entire adult life thinking about what's real and what isn't, he had such a powerful experience that it sort of threw everything he thought he knew into question. And that speaks to the mysterious power of these drugs. We don't really quite understand them yet, but I'd be really curious to know what you thought about, well, all of it or any of it. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. If you appreciated this episode, share it with your friends on social media. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.